This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. So the Prime Minister has returned from a meeting of NATO. James, do we start to see some divides in terms of what the various countries want? So I think one of the reasons why Joe Biden was you know, in Europe, has travelled in person to this meeting, is to try and maintain this sense of Western unity. I think it was telling that the US didn't ask for things that it knows that its European allies aren't prepared to do, like, for example, you know, ending the imports of Russian oil and gas. Instead, there's a, there's a plan to try and allow the, the EU to import more LNG from the US with the hope that, you know, that Europe can begin to substitute Russian pipeline gas with LNG from the US, Qatar and other countries. But, you know, that is going to be a long process. I, I think the other tension is going to come, which has not happened yet, is if Vladimir Putin starts looking for an off-ramp. I think the UK view is that the Ukrainians cannot be expected to cede territory, that you cannot have a situation where Vladimir Putin invades, it doesn't go according to plan, but he still comes away with a chunk of Ukraine. And I think the news this morning that the United Putin's United Russia Party is trying to open an HQ in Mariupol suggests that Putin is looking to annex that piece of territory in, in the same way he did Crimea. But I think there are some other countries in the Western Alliance who would be more interested in the question of, you know, a negotiated settlement that might you know, involve that. And I think the US view is also that, you know, Russia can't be seen to benefit from this conflict and this invasion. So that might be a tension coming down the line. But at the moment, I think there are very few signs that Vladimir Putin is looking for an off-ramp. You know, Emmanuel Macron has kind of designated himself as the kind of Western leader who speaks to Putin the most. And there has been no sign from the French to other members of NATO that Putin has yet moved to that position. Now, there is a question of, is he looking to make more gains before he he then tries and then negotiate from a position of strength? Is there a chance that he is in just in denial or not really been informed about the problems that the Russian invasion has run into? Or there is a third grim option, which is that he thinks that he can escalate still further in terms of the weaponry he's using, the level of destruction he is causing in civilian areas. That might enable Russia to break out of what is currently beginning to look a bit like a stalemate. Isabel, there seemed to be a sense, I think, earlier this week, there was some optimism in number 10 that these negotiations could lead to something quite quickly. But this is in contrast with the Foreign Office, with the Foreign Secretary appearing much more sceptical. But now there's a sense that everyone is sceptical. What are you picking up? Yeah, so Boris Johnson has has now said that he doesn't think that Vladimir Putin would be entering any negotiations in good faith. I thought it was interesting at the start of the week, William Hague's column in The Times on this, where he looked back to the negotiations he was involved in when he was foreign secretary over Syria uh, involving Russia and Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, then running in and out of the room answering calls from Vladimir Putin but Russia then entirely going back on what was said in those meetings and uh, continuing to help the Assad 
regime in uh, Syria with its its brutal war against its own people. And I felt there were sort of echoes of of what Haig had been saying at the start of the week and what Boris Johnson has, has since said about Vladimir Putin really sort of stringing people along in these negotiations. Uh, it's something that President Zelensky has, has repeatedly demanded, uh, saying he wants one-on-one negotiations with Vladimir Putin. But at the moment, it's, it's proving very hard uh, for that to happen. And, and indeed, as Boris Johnson says, even if that were to happen, it's very hard to see where that would actually realistically take the two countries. I think also on, on NATO and yesterday's uh, emergency summit, there were some divisions. So Boris Johnson came out of that summit saying that he, he'd never seen the alliance so united in its purpose. Uh, but there were divisions. So President Zelensky, uh, he continues to want a no-fly zone, but he sort of switched tack yesterday uh, to calling for uh, tanks and calling for NATO countries to supply jets for Ukraine to use. And uh, he complained that, that not, neither of those things had happened so far. And uh, Boris Johnson's line on tanks in particular is that there are logistical problems in supplying them. But President Macron ha- has said that, that would, that's a, a no-go zone uh, for NATO because of the risk of uh, that being uh, part of a criterion for direct contact, uh, direct conflict between NATO and Russia. But we did also see at the summit yesterday, I think, a real shift to countries talking about what might happen outside of Ukraine and the possibility of this conflict moving beyond Ukraine, something that Zelensky has been warning as part of his campaign to, to get NATO to help his country. Uh, he says, you know, it's, it, it's not just Ukraine, it'll be the Baltic countries next. Uh, Vladimir Putin's not going to stop. And we did see uh, in the statement from the leaders yesterday a focus on making preparations against that happening. And that's part of uh, the reason why 40,000 more troops are being sent to NATO's eastern flank. Now, James, as Boris Johnson has been uh, on the world stage at NATO, um, speaking tough about the UK and its support of Ukraine, uh, his next door neighbour, Rishi Sunak, has been continued to get a pasting in the media. How do things feel in the parliamentary party when it comes to that spring statement? Because as someone who reported on the 22 meeting on Wednesday after it, it was a broadly reasonably positive reception there were obviously some questions about cost of living but there was also I think enough praise in terms of potential future tax cuts that those around Rishi Sunak were quite happy in the initial stage. Look I think there's obviously Tory MPs with with asks right and you so you've had Peter Aldous talk about how he'd like to see more done for people on benefits who can't work for various reasons there are still Tory MPs who obviously want more money for defence I mean defence spending is going up already but you know we'd like to see more but I I think I think the broad reaction among Tory MPs is is it it, from those that I've spoken to is, is more positive than the media's reaction to it and I think there is also one of the things that I think is also true which is you know one of the worst kept secrets in Westminster is is that if the energy price cap goes up again in October by a significant margin, the government and the Treasury are going to have to step in again, as they did before when the price cap went up in April, with another package of support. But in some ways, the real test of all this comes when things like public sector pay come up, because... You know, in the last 10 years, depending on their level of seniority, t- teachers have had between a 5 and 
pay cut in real terms because pay has not kept up with inflation. Now you've had Simon Clark, the Chief Secretary of Treasury, saying it's widely unrealistic to think that public sector workers are going to get pay rises in line with inflation. I think when that comes down the track, I think there, there, there is going to be tension and trouble. And I think you can see people pointing to the difficulties that you've got with staff retention in the NHS, for example, to say, look, you can't carry on keeping such a tight rein on public sector pay. And, and I think one of the other differences that when the Tories took this very tough line on public sector pay in 2010, people assumed, now it's turned out to be wrong, people assumed that unemployment was going to spike. So the, kind of, the trade-off was clear. The public sector accepted below inflation pay rises, but you know, in exchange for job security. With unemployment low and with no sign of it going up, you know, it's still, you know, look at the OBR forecast for how low it's meant to be over the next few years. I, I think people will be less inclined to just accept below inflation pay rises. Isabel, what do you think? I think that it was interesting yesterday when Boris Johnson said that this government uh, needs to do more and, and is going to do more to help people with uh, the cost of living crisis. And th- and that's in part because uh, the, the proper form for this is, is the budget in the autumn. The spring statement is it's not a mini budget. It's supposed to be a sort of economic update. But it's also, I think, because things are going to get a lot tougher over the next few months. And Boris Johnson is not somebody who is generally inclined to tough this out in the way that Rishi Sunak has been gearing up to do. So we've heard a lot from the Chancellor over the past few weeks about how the government can't fix every problem, uh, how the government isn't in control of a lot of the drivers of the the global energy prices, for instance. And uh, there's a clear um, desire on the part of Rishi Sunak to move away from the uh, role of government in the pandemic, which was, you know, to save whole sectors, to, you know, to, to pump lots of money out and onto a, a, a government that, that when people, when sectors come to it saying we need help, it says, well, you know, how are you going to help yourself, basically? Boris Johnson's not so much like that. He doesn't like being disliked. We, we know that. We've said that a lot on this podcast. He's also somebody who came into office talking about turning the spending taps on, and that was before the interruption of COVID. Rishi Sunak saw COVID as an interruption. Boris Johnson, I think, probably saw it uh, as being more cohesive with his his general approach to things. I'm not saying that, you know, he, he sort of woke up Prime Minister thinking, yes, I'd like to introduce something like a furlough scheme uh, pre-pandemic. But he is certainly someone who's much more comfortable with, with throwing out bits of money. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. <laughs>